0: 2,000 years is a long time by most standards, but as we talked about this morning and as David made the good observation that to echo what Peter had to say to the Lord, a thousand years as like a day and a day like a thousand years, and so maybe 2,000 years isn't that long. But over the course of 2,000 years, when the New Testament events were recorded and when they transpired, we run the danger, among other things, of looking at the events that transpired in the New Testament as being merely historical events and things that we learn about, that we memorize, that we commit to our hearts. But we don't always apply them to the way that we live, because after all, that was 2,000 years ago. And they had their problems, but boy, do we have our problems today. And we can be guilty of thinking that we are different from those in the first century and that the challenges that Jesus spoke about to a group of individuals who were listening early in the days of the, uh, the prior to the kingdom coming, that they were different than our own. But I'm here to submit tonight something that I think you will agree with me, that when it comes to issues like Pharisees, that the dangers that were associated with the mentality of those individuals some 2,000 years ago are still as prevalent today. And so I've already given away the big application of what we're trying to do tonight. And that is the dangers associated with their self-righteous, we are right, you are wrong, we are better, you are worse, we are the right ones and the people of the way are the incorrect ones. Those are the same arguments that are made today by religious people and by non-religious people. And we need to make sure that we are aware of that caution and realize that just as it was an issue, then it is an issue today. I invite you to open your Bibles, if you'd like to, to the book of John, chapter 8, where we're going to begin reading here in just a couple of moments. As was announced by Brother Matt, we are certainly glad that you are here, that you have chosen to be a part of our efforts at Northfield Boulevard. John, chapter 8, where we'll read in just a moment. I wanted to also say that David and I routinely are asked by song leaders to uh, what is your topic or what are some of the major points you're going to address. And so when Brother uh, Ben asked me what the lesson was on tonight, I said it's going to be on Pharisees. You got any songs on Pharisees? So I'm going to put it out there that if someone wants to write a song, you can have the monopoly on the song about Pharisees. It'd be a catchy tune. But, you know, I was thinking about the songs that he selected. Lord, we come before thee now. Teach me thy way. God is the fountain from which all blessings flow. And the focus of those songs is on God coming before him, submitting to his way. And they are all the polar opposite of the arguments that were made by the Pharisees. So you did a good job in picking those songs tonight. And as we'll sing in just a few moments, will Jesus find us watching? We don't want the world to find us watching. We don't want to impress the world. We don't want to impress a religious sect of individuals like the Pharisees who would have existed some 2,000 years ago. But we want to be impressive to Jesus and by His grace be saved. When you think about Pharisees in the Bible, some quick numbers or some quick facts that I thought were of interest, The term Pharisee is used some 100 or so times in the Bible, and it is, no surprise, as students of the Bible, exclusively used in the New Testament because this, even though it is uh, some trappings of the Old Testament law, certainly transfer into that of the pharisaical way of thinking, it is exclusively a New Testament concept in that it is talked about. It is almost always talked about in plural form, that is, there are very few occasions where the word Pharisee Is used. Now you can think of a couple of those when you think about Nicodemus, when you think about Joseph of Arimathea, when you think about Paul as a Pharisee, or Saul as a Pharisee before he changed his name and changed the trajectory of his life. And to give away a little bit of our study starting next Sunday morning as we look at the parallel Gospels, as we look at Matthew and Mark and Luke and a little bit even at John you'll see that it is a term that is used most frequently in the first four books of the New Testament. And it is, without a doubt, a major teaching point of Jesus Christ and His early warnings. And it is something that I would make the argument that if a person says, well, I'm a good student of the Bible... I read the New Testament, and you say, well, tell me what you think about Pharisees, or what do you know about Pharisees? If that's an essay question, and they draw a blank, they really haven't studied Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John very well. Because if you study those books, you know about Pharisees. You know about their attitude. You know about their uh, ability to make you look bad and to make themselves look good. And this is not so much a, a study of the Pharisees and their beliefs, but rather of the condemnations that are outlined in passages over the course of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the argument that I'm making, that I made at the introduction, is the one that I want us to really hone in on. And that is, everything of, that we talk about tonight is applicable to us in the 21st century. And we do ourselves a disservice And I think one of the reasons that we might do this is because we don't want to step on others' toes and we don't want to step on our own toes in saying, well, we could be guilty of those same things. We say, those Pharisees, those rotten men in the way that they conducted themselves, and rightly so, they need to be condemned for their actions and for their attitudes. But could we be guilty of the same way of thinking that they did Some 2,000 years ago. I want to look at a handful of what I would call points of caution. And point of caution number one is that we need to be careful about seeing sin in others while failing to see sin in our own lives. Let's read in John chapter 8. And we're going to read three different texts. Two that are a little bit longer and then a brief one from the Gospel of Luke. But in John chapter 8 verse 1 it says, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning, he came again unto the temple. And all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. Some versions say in the very act of adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Moses, in the law, commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and rode on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first." You know, we could have a sermon. In fact, I have some sermons just on those seven verses. And we detail the events of what happened. But isn't that a powerful way of teaching? Sometimes the best way to approach others is to ask a question of them. And that was one of the favorite methods and chosen methods of our Savior in asking questions. And here he asks this question, which points the finger back at them and says, if you are without sin, you can be the first one to cast the stone. And of course, Jesus is illustrating the universally accepted truth in that all of us have sinned and come short of God's glory. But as you read those six or seven verses, you get an early flavor of the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the first century, and the fact that they were more concerned with finding error in others rather than seeing themselves. And that'll bring us to our fifth and final point of caution in just a couple of moments. But turn just a page or so over in your Bibles to John chapter 9, and I want us to begin reading in verse 13. You could say, well, there's more that we could say about John chapter 8, but for the sake of time, just kind of put a pin there for a moment, and we'll come back to that. But in John chapter 9 and verse 13, the text says, they brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. And it was the Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes, as recorded earlier in the Gospel of John. And the Pharisees also asked him again how he had received his sight. And he says, he put clay on my eyes, and I washed And I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. And so, even though the Pharisees are not united in their quest to take down Jesus on all occasions, it was seemingly that they were united on other occasions to take down Jesus and to destroy this man. And as much as we don't love it, we love to read the scriptures where it says there in verse 16, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? You know, this is the age old, look at the wrong that you are doing so that I don't have to look at my own wrong. And then a similar kind of story or text is found in Luke chapter 15 Beginning in verse 29, we're just going to read two verses. And what I want you to do is to remember the three thems that occur in Luke chapter 15, verse 29 and 30. Luke chapter 15 is, of course, a familiar text because it is the the account... Of, of of a parable that had three different messages in it, one about a sheep, one about a coin, and one about a son. And of course, there are so many multiple meanings within those stories themselves. But drop down to verse 29. He answered and said to his father, this is the son who had remained at home, who had not uh, displayed the arrogance and the... Uh, riotous prodigal living of his brother he says lo these many years I have been serving you I never transgressed your commandment at any time and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends but as soon as this son of yours came who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fattened calf for him it seems to me That we need to understand that in texts like this and in texts other places that you see a whole focus on others rather than self. That this is the age old look at the evil that others have done but don't look at the evil that I have done. The fact of the matter is, is we need to understand that seeing sin in others while failing, while failing to see it in our own lives is dangerous. And I'm going to make this a statement uh, at least five times in the course of our study together tonight. Could this happen in my individual life wherein I see the sin in someone else, but I refuse to see it in myself? And then as a second question, which we'll ask at least five times, is it possible for us as a congregation to be willing to look and see the sin in others without seeing our own errors and our own mistakes and our own shortcomings? The answers are obvious yeses. It's possible for us to develop that mentality. Which brings us to point of caution number two while you're here in Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15 tells us, among other things, a point of caution number two, and that is failing to see the need to reach and to teach the lost. I had a recent conversation with a brother in Christ, and we were talking about areas where we can continue to grow and areas where we can improve and things that we can do better about. And this is one of those things that I think we can, I I hope we all agree, we want to improve individually in teaching the lost, as small groups teaching the lost, and then as a congregation standing for the truth so that we can teach the lost through the means of the individual Christians involved. Go back to Luke chapter 15. We didn't read the first two verses, but I want to read the first two verses for this reason. It says, All the tax collectors and sinners drew near to him to hear him, and this is what prompted guess what group of people to complain. Even without looking at verse 2, you already know the answer. Because it says, The Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Which is why he spoke to them this triad of parables, sheep, coin, and son, or sons, as the parable may be known. And so I think it's important for us to note that these Pharisees complained If you like underlining things in your Bible, underline Pharisees and then underline complain because that's a lot of what they did. And rather than complaining about we need more truth, when the truth was taught, they were upset with the truth being delivered. Do you know individuals today that the more the truth is taught the more upset individuals get. I've run across those people. And in fact, people will shy away from the Lord's church and say, I'm not interested in the body of Christ because you guys are too involved in teaching the truth. Now, they won't say it that way, but that's what they believe because they aren't interested in the things that are going to cause them to think differently about their need to do what the Lord has asked them to do. Turn back to Matthew chapter 9. And verse 11. And I want to read three verses in Matthew chapter 9 as we think about failing to see the need to reach and teach the lost. Matthew chapter 9. Go back to verse 9. And it says Jesus passed on from there and he saw a man named Matthew or Levi sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. It happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And then, verse 11, when the Pharisees saw it, they rejoiced over the Lord providing salvation to those who needed it desperately. I get puzzled, looks, because that's not what it says in verse 11. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And in the tone in my in my mind, as he that, as they ask that question, is who does he think he is? He's supposed to be this great religious revolutionary, this great leader and spiritual uh, example, and here he is. What a shame. That he would act that way. Verse 12 says when Jesus heard that he said those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Going back to text in the Old Testament. For I did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. We even sing songs. The great physician now is near. The sympathizing Jesus. That comes from this text where we see Jesus saying I'm going out into the world to find people who are sinners and we need to be individuals who do the same thing. The Pharisees failed on this and a number of other occasions to see and understand the fundamental purpose of Jesus Christ which as we read in Luke chapter 9 verse 56 is to seek and save the lost he did not come to destroy but he came to save that doesn't mean that it's not going to be destruction because the gospels record that Jesus is the one who bears the sword right and he is the one who will cause division who will uh, who, who will cause individuals to be divided uh, into those two groups of righteous and unrighteous but the Pharisees failed to see that this was the important important. Important role of Jesus. Can we as individuals, like we talked about in our Bible class this morning, be guilty of typecasting an individual by saying he's involved in sin or she is so wrapped up in sin that there's no way for me to reach them? There may not be a way for me or you to reach them, but there is a way that the gospel can reach them. Or Can we as a congregation be guilty of failing to see the need to reach and teach the lost? Is it possible that we not see that as being the real purpose of what we're trying to do? We're trying to teach each other and to build up one another. But remember, like we talked about two weeks ago tonight, the church is involved not only in edification, building up one another, which is an important task. But we are also the pillar and the ground of the truth, and we have the responsibility of teaching others, in, in, even in spite of the sin in which they are involved. And let me take that a step further, and I talked about this about six or seven weeks ago, that we need to be ready as a congregation of the Lord's people So that when someone who is involved in sin comes into the church and says, you know what, I'm ready, or is is added to the church because he's believed, repented, confessed, and obeyed through baptism, we need to be ready that things might get a little bit rocky for a few moments or a few weeks as that person has to grow in his or her service to the Lord. Which brings us to point of caution number three. And that is the practice of looking at others and finding sin in their lives and only searching them for the purpose of seeing sin. Now, let me get the caveat here. If you see sin in my life, if I see sin in your life, it is a responsibility of us as Christians, as illustrated in James 5, verses 19 and 20, among other places. It is our responsibility to say, you know what? I'm concerned about your behavior. I'm concerned about your speech. I'm concerned about your inactivity, whatever the case may be. But my job as a human being is not to be looking and saying, I sure hope they mess up. I sure hope that they goof up. I sure hope that they sin. But that's exactly what the Pharisees seem to be doing. This observation is important to make and that is seeing sin in others is a good and valuable thing, but only if practiced correctly. I want to look at just one passage here to make this particular point in the book of Luke chapter 6. Turn over, if you would, to the gospel of Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, I want us to read the first six or seven verses here. It says, as it happened, chapter 6 verse 1, on the second Sabbath after the first That he went, Jesus, into the grain fields, and his disciples plucked the heads of grain and ate them, rubbing them in their hands. And some of the Pharisees said to them, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? But Jesus answered them and said, Have you not even read this, what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he went into the house of God, took and ate the showbread, and also gave some to those who with him, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And he said to them, The Son of Man is also the Lord of the Sabbath. You know, it's interesting before we go on two more verses just to set the stage that Jesus doesn't help himself with the statements that he makes if the objective is to help himself physically. He makes statements that he knows is really going to rub these Pharisees the wrong way. And that's exactly what's happening here. When he says, I'm similar to David in the sense that I went and took of the showbread. Or the son of man who is me, I am Lord of the Sabbath. I am even greater than the Sabbath. In fact, in verse 6, it happened on another Sabbath also that he entered the synagogue and saw, and a man was there whose right hand was withered, and the scribes and Pharisees, now watch it here, it says, watched him closely, whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find an accusation against him. That is a horrible rotten attitude. And that is a horrible, rotten attitude that some people in the world still have today. They are watching to see if they can find something to accuse us of. Is it possible? And this is uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for me to even ask the question because I'm asking it of myself. But is it possible that I as an individual could get into a habit of looking at my brothers or my sisters or even those in the world saying I want to find something wrong in them because when I find something wrong in your life it makes me feel better about me because I don't struggle with that particular sin now don't 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 look at me but I'll look at you is it possible that we as a congregation could adopt that particular attitude and examine the lives of others strictly for finding sin in their lives? Again, there's nothing wrong with seeing sin and then saying there's something that needs to be done about it. But aren't we supposed to hope for the best in each other, assume the best? Isn't it true that elders, among other observations, are supposed to be blameless in that we hope for the best in them as well? And so we appreciate so much. I, I think about that anytime time uh, I drive through a parking lot that has a liquor store. I think, what if, because there's usually three or four different stores, and the one that I'm frequenting is not the liquor store. And I think, what if someone sees me pulling out of here? What are they going to think? And then I think, you know What? The brethren are probably going to think he's probably at one of those other stores. And that's what I hope that you believe. Now, if you had a question about that, I'd hope you'd be the first person to come to me and say, I just want to make sure you were going to the right store. I'd be glad to show you my receipt. This is where I went. This is where I did not go. But the fact is, is we hope for the best in each other. Because we are brothers and sisters who aren't looking to find error in each other. Remember Jesus talked about that in the great sermon on the mountaintop when he said in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, he says, don't be like those individuals who have a two by four coming out of their eye and they're looking for a speck in someone else's eye. He says, that doesn't make any sense. That's just a ridiculous picture to paint. Which brings us to point of caution number four. And that is this, being more interested in academic debate than simple obedience. Now, there's nothing wrong with discussion and detailed looking at the scriptures. I'm not suggesting that we not get into the scriptures and discuss them. We need to do so. We need to make sure that we do that from a young age to an older age. We need to make sure that we understand certain elements of faith and make sure that these things are indeed true. But let me look at three passages to help you understand what I'm talking about here. One in Matthew, one in Mark, and one in Luke. Go back to Matthew chapter 19. And we're not going to discuss the the nine verses. That's a, a sermon or two in and of itself. But just read with me the first three verses and you'll see the point that I think that I'm trying to make here. And he says, it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings about uh, forgiveness and about the need to be forgiving, not just up to seven times, but 70 times. He says, it came to pass when he finished these sayings that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan and great multitudes followed him and he healed them there. And the Pharisees also came to him, and here it is, it says, testing him. You know, the Pharisees never come to Jesus and give him this fair opportunity. They are always testing him, seeking opportunity to destroy him, find opportunity to trip him up. And you know what? They batted 0, zero, zero. <laughs> They were never able to trip up Jesus. Now, they thought that they had success. They thought that when he was crucified, they thought, yes, we got him. But Jesus says, that's not the case. You may have thought you've won, but the Lord always wins. And the Pharisees came and they tested him. They said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? It seems to me that part of this was an academic debate because Jesus very plainly says, let's go back to the beginning and look at what was said in verses 7, 8, and 9, which is what he talks about. He says, let's go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. Let's go back to the very beginning. And he says, Moses, as we just recently talked about in Deuteronomy chapter 24, out of the hardness of your own hearts permitted these things, but from the beginning it was not so. Similarly, in Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 11, it says the Pharisees came out and began to dispute. This is Mark chapter 8 and verse 11. It says the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him. So there's a word that we haven't seen yet, at least in the New King James Version. So we've had complaining. We've had testing, and now they are disputing with Jesus. Seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. If you're really looking for a sign from heaven, you would have already seen it, right? Because by the time Mark chapter 8 rolls around, we are now halfway through the Gospel of Mark. There have been plenty of signs. And what does Jesus do in verse 12? It says, He sighed deeply in His spirit. And said, why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. And then similarly in the gospel of Luke chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. I want to read just two verses there. In Luke chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. It happened in Luke chapter 20 and verse 1. It happened on one of those days as he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel that the chief priests and the scribes, together with the elders, confronted him. And what did the religious leaders do? They spoke to him and they said, tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who is he who gave you this authority? You know what the Pharisees remind me of? They remind me an awful lot of the citizens of Athens who in Acts chapter 17 gathered together. And what did the Bible say? What did Luke record about them? They searched for something new to hear And paraphrase with parentheses only to be entertained by that new doctrine of the day. Are there people that you know that just are interested in a debate? And I'm not talking about a debate over ideas and doctrine because that's valuable for us to be engaged in. But it doesn't matter what subject it is. They want to be cantankerous. They want to be disagreeable. And those are people that rather than being interested in seeking the truth, it seems as if their objective is the same as these. Ask, what is their objective? Because it seems to me it's not to find the truth. We want people, and we are trying to find people who have sincere hearts, who are open to the truth, who say, you know what? I want to learn more about the truth. I talked about a couple this morning that... I didn't think would be interested in the truth, but sure enough, they were. Reminds me of an individual who came to me about 45 minutes before services. I'd never met this man before. This is probably uh, a good 8 to 12 years ago. This man came to services, and met with me about an hour before the evening service. And he says, I think I need to change my life and I need to be baptized. And it was clear that he had been studying to make these different connections. And I said, well, and we talked for 30 to 45 minutes. And I said, i tell you what, I'll make you a deal. And I, I used my best judgment as I could as a 20-some-year-old individual. And I said, here's the deal. I said, I'm going to preach a sermon tonight. So I scrapped my sermon. And it was a really good one. It was the best sermon you would have ever heard. <laughs> so I scrapped it and I ad-libbed. I quickly wrote down some notes. Basically, if I've got one opportunity with this man for the next 30-some minutes, what am I going to say? And when I finished about baptism and about the importance of commitment and realizing what you are doing, he came forward. And he was baptized that evening. Now, he was in the military because this was in a military town, and so we never saw him again. And uh, I don't know what his status is now. I hope that he is still a faithful child of God wherever he is in the world. But there are still people who are seeking the truth and who aren't just seeking to get into an argument. And that doesn't mean that we can't argue with people. And when I say argue, you understand what I mean and say, you know what, that's not true. Look at the scriptures. We do so in a loving way. We season our speech with grace, Colossians chapter 4. We do so with patience and long-suffering, as we talked about in our recent Bible classes on Sunday mornings. But we want to find those individuals, and we pray that the Lord will put us in the path of those individuals who are sincerely seeking the truth. And that brings us to our fifth and final point of caution, and that is this. And I kind of already talked about this, and you probably already guessed we were going to go to Luke chapter 11 just a few moments ago, but that is having a wonderful outward appearance and a filthy inward reality. So let's turn over to Luke chapter 11 and read five verses here in Luke chapter 11. We can all put out a good product outwardly by the way that we dress, uh, by the way that we talk, but have you ever met someone who talks one way around a certain group of people and then when you find him or her in a more comfortable setting, boy, they talk an awful lot different. And when I say awful, I mean awful. Their language is pitiful. Maybe the way that they dress when they're not around people who they know are going to hold them accountable. We all have our private lives we all have our private past. And like we talked about in Philippians chapter 3, we all have our private regrets in our lives. But in Luke chapter 11, go to verse 37. He spoke, a certain Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went and sat down and eat, And when the Pharisee saw it, he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. And then verse 39 of Luke chapter 11, it says, The Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees make the outside of the cup and dish clean, but your inward part is full of greed and wickedness. Foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also, but rather give alms of such things as you have? Then indeed all things are clean to you. But woe to you Pharisees, For you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs and pass by justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. And he continues in verses 43 and 44 with this series of woes. The comparison text, of course, is Matthew chapter 23. But he says, Woe to you, verse 43, Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, for you are like graves which are not seen, and the men who walk over them are not aware of them. And on and on and on, Matthew chapter 23 goes with these woes to the scribes, the Pharisees, and the religious leaders. I would make the argument that this is a challenge for us as well. Is it a challenge for us as individuals to make sure that we aren't just putting on this facade for the world to see or for our brethren to see? Or are we as a church sometimes apt to be guilty if we're not careful of saying, look, we got everything put together. We've got a nice building. We've got nice people. We've got all these nice things. But I've known of churches that looked like they had it all together, and then six months down the road, they were falling apart because of division within them, because of disagreements among members, because of issues like we talked about in Philippians chapter 4, verse 2 this morning. The fact of the matter is, is we have to be cautious about the idea of Phariseeism today as much as it was then. So we come to the close with the same way that we began, and that is if we only look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as historical texts that help us to appreciate what Jesus went through and the challenges that he had to endure, and we say, boy, he had real problems in dealing with those Pharisees. I'm sure glad that we don't have to deal with those problems today, We've lost the message of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We've lost the message of the New Testament because we need to be concerned about Phariseeism as much today as it was back then. I understand that some of the things that I've said this evening are potentially difficult to hear. We don't like to think of ourselves as being hypocritical or as being judgmental or as being short-sighted or as being men and women who seek the worst in others. But some of us have acted that way in our past, which is why we've resolved to make changes for the better. And we hope that you'll make the change as well. I understand that it's difficult to think about as a congregation that we could do anything wrong because after all, we are the Lord's people. We're trying our very best to do what God has asked us to do. But let's be honest with ourselves. Let's take a, an honest appraisal of ourselves. Let's look at a real mirror, not a, a, a funhouse mirror that makes us look better than what we all uh, think we would. The fact is, is we are trying to do what the Lord asks us to do. And that's what we're asking you to do. As we said this morning, if you are here and you are not a Christian, we are begging you pleading with you to consider becoming a Christian just as that man did some dozen years ago and then remained faithful to the point of death if we can help you to make that commitment or maybe you want to study some about it maybe you're you're getting close to becoming a Christian but you've yet to make that choice we would welcome the opportunity to help you or if you are a child of God living in sin and you need to make some sort of correction uh, maybe something that I've said tonight has prompted you to say, you know what, I, I'm guilty of that. If it's private, take care of that in prayer. Even while we sing, you can pray to our God and say, please help me to make those changes, and I'm going to make those changes. If we can help in any way, spiritually, let us know while together we stand and while we sing.